Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Today, we're going to explore the relationship between awareness and ethics, mindfulness and morality. In the last video, we explored how there are three levels of ethics. There is the literal level, there's the compassionate level, and then there's the koan level, the level of intimacy, meaning the level where you have a practice that allows you to become the situation. The first level is about having a practice. The second level is about your practice, including other people. And the third level is how you are with yourself and others in a way that brings forth a realization of interdependence, being part of the web we call life. It's easy to get stuck in one particular perspective. And the nice thing about these three different lenses on the precepts is that they allow us to constantly re-see uh, or recognize what's actually uh, right in front of us. So mindfulness is about paying attention in a sustained way in each moment. This means sitting, breathing, responding, walking, lying down, getting up, turning in both directions, urinating, defecating, Mindfulness is the gift of nonviolence that you give to each moment as best you can. So I want to just go a little bit deeper into this term, mindfulness. The, the term mindfulness comes from the Buddhist tradition, where in Pali the word is sati, and in Sanskrit the word um, is smrti. Uh, you find that term also in the Yoga Sutra. Smriti is the Sanskrit version of Pali, and Sanskrit predates Pali. Sanskrit was a language in, used in ancient India, mostly by the Brahmin classes. And when the Buddha's teachings were memorized and eventually uh, codified into texts, the teachings were put down in an invented language, a new language called Pali, because it was more of a street language. It was a language one would use to communicate to another person. It wasn't sort of chanted in temples uh, or by Brahmin families. 
Um, and of course, one big difference between Sanskrit and Pali is that women uh, knew Pali and Sanskrit was mostly the domain of, of the male gender. Uh, some scholars uh, agree now that Pali was created uh, just for the Buddha's teachings. And, and we're not going to go into this uh, tangent uh, too much, even though I want to. But it's interesting to think about the way a language is created to appeal to the situation in which people live, uh, just like ethics. And this is a great thing to remember about our spiritual practice. Uh, those great traditions that we're referring to, uh, the tradition of yogis, the tradition of uh, dharma practitioners, they were invented by humans, and they're constantly being redesigned by us humans. And as some of those ancient teachings now come alive in our culture, they have some really important things to teach us. And at the same time, our psyche and our society is going to change those teachings. And this is a good thing. The way we wrestle with ethical principles like nonviolence and honesty, uh, not being greedy, uh, this is how these teachings come to our life. We struggle with them, we digest them, we metabolize them, we act them out, we integrate them. And that process is the process of embodying lineage, the process of embodying the precepts. So sati or smrti literally means to remember. And it's a verb. Uh, it means uh, to come back. And this is why it's translated as mindfulness. It means in every moment where we're you know, entangled in stories, good or bad, the past or the, or the future, we come back into this moment via the breath, via the body, coming back into your heart, the conditions that you're in. And the practice of mindfulness really has uh, two different wings. We can say the practice of meditation is about these two wings. One wing is called shamatha, which is usually translated as calming. And the other wing is called vipassana, or vipassana in Pali. A V means to go in, and pasha is an I. So literally it means insight. So one side, shamatha, is about calming, and the other side is about insight. And these two ways of practicing meditation work together. Developing mindfulness involves sort of three major skills. Uh, focused attention or concentration, open monitoring, monitoring or mindfulness, and compassionately accepting what's actually happening in our experience. And these can be confusing because in Buddhist traditions, open monitor, monitoring is also sometimes called mindfulness, while in the West, we typically use the word mindfulness as an umbrella term covering a variety of interrelated practices. Focused attention, so staying with the inhale and exhale, for example, it's a practice where we choose an object of awareness and we follow it closely. And it's usually a good place 
for most people to start. Staying with inhaling, staying with exhaling, this practice focuses and stabilizes the mind, forming a foundation for developing other meditative skills. So while the primary object of awareness can be virtually anything, including the breath, color, a candle, sensations of the breath, the feet touching the floor, sounds, uh, visual stimulus, um, the instruction is similar. We, we bring our attention to the object. In the Buddhist tradition, there's 40 different objects. And we cultivate an attitude of interest or curiosity in moment-to-moment -moment sensations. Uh, or as thoughts enter the mind, they invariably, we kind of allow them to arise and pass away. And when our mind gets hijacked by a chain of narrative or thought, or we wander to other sensations other than the breath, we gently come back and bring our focus back to the primary object of meditation. And the primary object that I'm referring to in this course is the breath. Without a certain degree of concentration, it becomes difficult to see the working of the mind clearly. We tend instead to spend our days lost in thought. And when involved in just verbal narrative all the time, we usually both believe in the content of our stories and we lose a kind of metacognitive awareness of what the mind's actually doing in each moment because we're just identified or misidentified with the story. So without a stable concentration, it's difficult to exercise choice in our behavior because we tend to react compulsively on impulses not noticing that we have an opportunity to pause and consider our response before pursuing uh, pleasure or recoiling from uh, pain or habit. And without concentration, it's also quite difficult to practice the two other skills necessary for developing mindfulness, open monitoring and compassionate acceptance. Once a certain degree of focused attention or concentration has been developed, and the mind can really stay with an object, like the breath, for a little while, and realize when it's wandered off, it becomes possible to practice open monitoring. Here, instead of returning repeatedly to the breath, you know, as sensation of breathing, or instead of returning repeatedly to one particular object of awareness, we let our focus open up to whatever dominates consciousness at that moment. So attention might shift from the breath to a sound, or to an ache in the body, or to the feeling of the temperature of the air on the face, or a sensation of sadness, maybe, in the eyes or in the throat. Rather than thinking about or analyzing sensations, we allow the mind just to be with them. So we bring an attitude of interest, curiosity, and acceptance to the experience. 
until you've spent some time developing concentration and you really know, you really know what it's like to remain with a single object like the breath for a sustained period of time, it can be difficult to get a feel for open monitoring or in Zen what's called just sitting. The attitude is sometimes described as like sitting next to a still forest pool to which all sorts of creatures come to drink before they move on. The creatures of the forest all show up to have a drink at that lake. The creatures arrive and then they leave and it's beyond our control. We try to welcome all of them. Uh, a deer comes, a bear comes, a fish jumps out of the water. So one way to understand the relationship between focused attention and open monitoring is also by thinking about photography before cameras were automated. In those days, to get a clear picture, you first had to know how to focus the camera lens. Without the skill of being able to focus the lens of the camera, a photographer was limited to very abstract or impressionist kind of blurry images. Learning to concentrate is like focusing the lens of the mind, allowing us to see really clearly whatever we turn our attention to. And once this skill is developed, we can use it to examine whatever might be happening at that moment. Open monitoring can be useful for seeing how the mind creates suffering as it resists various sensory experiences, as well as, um, as the mind relates to emerging thoughts or images. So it's helpful for reintegrating, you know, split off or disavowed contents. Uh, these contents could include thoughts we haven't wanted to think, feelings we haven't wanted to feel, impulses that aren't sanctioned by the culture or our family or community, uh, old memories, uh, traumatic events that were maybe too painful uh, to experience fully when they occurred. Open monitoring, when we just let our attention be open to what's going on, helps us notice these contents as they arise in the mind. And as we practice, we greet them with an open acceptance, with kindness. They can become familiar and they no longer feel like kind of foreign intrusions. Just like in psychotherapy, in the old days or in psychoanalysis, where if one lies on the couch and they freely say whatever comes to mind, sooner or later, a lot of material that we've tried to avoid will also start coming into awareness. Also in mindfulness practice, content like this also returns to awareness. And what emerges can range from minor traumatic memories such as moments of rejection or hurt or defeat, or failures, to major ones like experiences of physical or sexual abuse or trauma, uh, aggressive, avaricious or sexual energy that's more aggressive or dark can also arise. 
And as we'll discuss later in this course, these encounters with the contents uh, of life can be useful or damaging depending on a person's readiness to accept and integrate these contents. Another potential benefit of practicing open monitoring, of sitting and just noticing what's going on, is it enhances our appreciation for the richness of the moment. When we practice attending to sensory experience in meditation, with compassionate awareness, with kindness. During the rest of our day, we notice that our sense of taste and touch and seeing and feeling becomes more vivid. When you sit down, drop your sits bones into the floor and give the earth your weight. Let your legs feel the floor underneath you. And sometimes uh, when I sit, if my nervous system is a little bit agitated or my mind is busy, I'll just spend some time feeling the stillness of the floor. Uh, the, the ground is always quiet. So I'll just let my body feel the earth. And then I start to follow my breathing and I'll give attention to the inhale and the exhale until it's settled. Sometimes I like to focus on the breath in my nostrils, and sometimes I like to focus on breath uh, just behind the navel. And that's the first stage of shamatha practice, is being able to let this calmness of the breath and the body uh, arise, letting the body receive breathing. This doesn't mean you make your breath calm or try to make your body calm. It's important when we start practicing formal meditation that we're not confusing it with yogic breathing techniques um, called pranayama, uh, where we manipulate the breath. In meditation, we just let the breath be natural. We give attention to the breath. We feel it in the nostrils. We feel it in the belly. Sometimes the breath is smooth like silk. Sometimes it's a bit rough, like canvas. If the breath is in more one nostril or more in the other nostril, we just notice that. The way the diaphragm moves, we notice that. If the breath is more in the front or more in the back, we notice that. And once the breath is settled and the body knows it's breathing, then we can start to go into open monitoring. So in open monitoring, we're, we're energized, and yet we're calm at the same time. There's a sense we're awake, and we're also at ease. Our attitude is compassionate, and we can uh, accept whatever shows up in awareness. So this is called shamatha. Uh, it's also where we get the word shanti, uh, or peace. Uh, sham is also a nickname for Shiva. Uh, which refers to a sense of open awareness and ease. Uh, it's a noun and a verb. Uh, it's feeling a sense of ease and also being able to ease our fixations. And, and the first step of shamatha, the first step of mindfulness, or the first step of finding ease, is just being able to stop, uh, to know how to stop, to sit down. Our culture is running so fast, we're, we're all running. 
some of us are running away from things we don't want to look at, uh, running away from stillness, running away from intimacy. And even though intimacy is something we have as a value, maybe there are ways that we're uh, sabotaging intimacy by not really knowing how to stop, by not being in this moment, in this experience. The way the sun is coming in through the skylight here, uh, the sounds of the city in the distance, uh, feelings in the body, uh, digesting lunch right now in my belly, uh, the warmth right now uh, in the belly, uh, coolness in the feet, uh, just coming into this body, this particular moment, and then appreciating how the nature of the mind is awareness. Behind what we call the mind, behind all these stories and images and sensations, uh, we're figuring out that there is this sense of uh, stability that's there all the time. And I like to call this a natural resource. Uh, trust that that natural resource, uh, that treasure, is available to you in every moment. Even when you're panicking or you hear sounds uh, or you have anxiety or you're stirred up, uh, Finding that place of awareness through breathing uh, can happen uh, more and more easily if you're practicing every day. Start every day early in the morning. Uh, sit when you're tired. Sit when you're busy. Uh, and don't try and use your mind to work out what's going on for you. Instead, go under the stories, under the worries, uh, to the other end of the spectrum, which is the body. Feel and trust the body. Sometimes people who haven't processed a deep old grief or memories, they have undigested uh, traumas, for example. They have a hard time connecting to the feeling of breathing in the body. So just go slowly. If you're not trying to make uh, a particular experience happen, um, you can just allow the breath to come and go easily. Um, sit and follow your breathing. Uh, even when there's a lot of restlessness, uh, just notice that restlessness while you're breathing. You can bring mindfulness to whatever is present. Mindfulness does not mean that you're aware of breathing and nothing else. If your mind is busy, you can note that your mind is busy. If the mind is planning, note planning. If you're feeling lazy, uh, just know that there's laziness present. Stay with it and watch how it changes as you connect it to your breathing. When we say uh, meditation, uh, mindfulness, or shamatha, or vipassana, we are calling this uh, a practice of stopping and seeing clearly. We're realizing when we're present with our compulsions, our fears, our worry, or our sadness, and we're noticing that 
so it fades. There are times when whatever you're caught up with uh, settle. That's what I was calling shun. It seems like this ability to stop is the impulse of nonviolence. To be able to find enough quietude in your body that you can start to see the arising and passing away of thoughts. And this allows you to touch this place of non-harming. So it's not a philosophy. It's not saying I'm not harming or I'm not violent or I subscribe to the ideology of non-killing or I'm a vegan and so on. In your quiet experience, it's the ability to find and trust that place, no matter what's showing up for you, to trust that place of stability and ease. Of course, this is easier to do in a quiet place than in the marketplace. We cultivate the ability to touch that place of non-harm where we are, literally, connecting with the breath at the level of sensation and allowing the conceptual mind to settle in an awareness free of distraction, impeccable awareness. This is a sort of relaxed, open attention that I think is important to get a sense of in this course because it's from that place of being open being curious, being interested and compassionate, that a sense of interconnection arises. As we get quiet, our self-centeredness decreases. When we're self-centered, uh, worried about the future or worried about the past, the first thing that disappears is a sense of appreciation, of gratefulness, and a sense of the interconnectedness of life. We rush past people. We don't even take the time to be aware of uh, the wind, the seasons, the pain and joy in each moment and in other people's lives. And this is the great paradox of meditation. We come to meditation thinking it's gonna give us peace, or it's going to send us uh, to a space where we won't feel anything anymore. Through the technique of staying with breathing, what starts to happen is we find the ease behind the scenes of our grasping and our rushing. So rather than something to achieve, meditation is the practice of feeling at ease with what is, appreciating what's actually there, and then not holding on to it. That is shamatha, and that is nonviolence. That's really the heart of meditation practice. When we get calm, we start to develop vipassana, which is the other wing of practice the wing of insight. We start to get insight into the working of the mind, into the working of other minds, into the working of the way that suffering is constructed in our minds and in our society. 
So simply put, the more stillness you can contact in your own experience, the more you begin to see how whatever you're sticking to, whatever you're going after, whatever you're chasing and hungry for, whatever you're trying to keep for yourself is pretty much a futile endeavor. When you see the futility of that, you begin to get some insight into suffering, some insight into uh, um, this kind of a spinning wheel of trouble we keep investing in. You begin to get insight into that ache you're always trying to cover over. And that is social action. As soon as you make the link between how you're acting out of old unconscious fear-based patterns and how you're not able to connect with a deep stillness in your own self, then you're contributing to something profound in the culture. Sitting still is political. Settling your attention is political. Your friends and your family will feel this. Your, your family will see this. The people around you will see this. It benefits everybody. So meditation is not really a solitary practice. Part of the Vipassana side of meditation is starting to see how suffering is something we're always running away from. It's starting to fully know suffering, to fully know violence, to fully know pain, heartache, brokenness, to fully know how you kill, how you're dishonest, to fully know this without judging it. And then you can learn how to take care of that or how to take care of your sense of dissatisfaction or lack or inadequacy and how that shows up for you. So learning how to take care of these different mental states and seeing into their nature, we start to also see that they're impermanent. Everything that flows through awareness is subject to change. Everything that moves through us is just like water. In fact, the I, who I think I am, is also changing. It's impermanent. So this level of Vipassana, this level of insight, is insight into the fact that you do not inherently exist as a thing. And I'm not going to get too much into that today. But what it's referring to is underneath all of our distractions and endless ideations and images and thoughts. We can touch something that's deeper than our personality. We can have a felt sense of what I call intimacy or the oneness of life, interdependence, the one body. It's an intimacy, it's a recognition that, that, that decenters the self. When you're caught up in something, you can have a relaxed awareness about it, and in that relaxed awareness, you're not judging what's showing up. You return to the breath. And you let whatever is predominant just come and go. You return to the body as an anchor. When this happens, you'll start to see places 
where it's easy to be present and certain patterns or certain sensations or feelings or agitations where it's hard to stay present. And that inner work that you're doing, that's the beginning of nonviolence. That's the beginning of the three levels of nonviolence. It's literally not causing harm because you're not taking unconscious, habitual, reactive modes or uh, pathways with what's showing up. And it's compassionate because in each moment you're meeting what's showing up. In each moment you're meeting what's showing up accompanied by your breathing. There's a joke in uh, um, meditation circles that your mind is like a bad neighborhood that you do not want to go in alone. And this is so true. Uh, some corners of our minds are threatening to us. Uh, you'll see this. There are days where you won't want to sit. And I've been giving this a lot of airtime in this video. Um, but, you know, we don't give some areas in our life much attention. And meditation is going to bring that up. And so we use this simple practice. So we go into those neighborhoods accompanied. Accompanied by trust in breathing, relearning how to trust ourselves and the spaciousness and effortlessness of breathing. So I always tell kids when I work with them that can, the breath is like your best friend. Uh, it's very loyal and will never leave you. Uh, your breath will never leave you in those parts of the psyche that are threatening or difficult. So the practice of mindfulness meditation, of stopping, of gaining insight, of compassionate acceptance is a practice of coming home. So the theme in this video is that our practice of nonviolence is in the creative practice of meeting each moment as it is. If you can't meet what's going on for you, moment to moment to moment, it's so easy to lose track of yourself. You lose track of your life, you lose track of what's important, and then you're not listening to what's really going on in your own heart. Sometimes we don't want to listen. We have selective hearing. My mother tells me I have this. And this practice is about the creative engagement with our lives that happens naturally. It's the loving response that happens naturally when we're not stressed, when we're not highly reactive, when we're not projecting our suffering onto other people or institutions or politicians or our parents or our children or our teachers or authority figures, we're able to stay with the truth of what's really happening in our experience. And this is the heart of mindfulness. So I hope you can see how being mindful day to day is inseparable from ethics. And this is what I referred to in the first video as situational ethics. Situational ethics means having the ability, the creativity, 
the, the, the ability to be present as a wellspring. It means the ability to meet a situation or a person or a feeling and to drop your fixed perspective. And that's the heart of non-attachment. Non-attachment is a skill. It's just like learning piano or French or uh, Sanskrit, where we're training our brain, we're training our nerves, we're training our breathing to be able to show up. I don't think you can separate creativity and nonviolence. I think that at the heart, they really come back to this ability to be able to meet the moment fully without prejudice. When you can meet each moment fully, you're practicing nonviolence. You're practicing creativity. You're practicing situational ethics and you may not get it right. Part of meeting each moment is showing up with your history and your life. And you may show up not knowing what to do and end up doing something unskillful. We're going to get into that more in future videos. But for now, the most important thing is embodying the precepts through mindfulness practice. So that meditative practice and ethics are one thing. Every day, sit for 30 minutes, sit still, and then get up. Sometimes when I get up, I like to start by telling myself, reminding myself, uh, by setting an intention that I'm going to take my practice into the world. So you can do this uh, every day, sitting 30 minutes. With your partners this week, just talk about meditation practice and how it's impacting your life. Let one person talk for 20 minutes and while the other listens and then switch. And at the end, share your process around what's happening when you're sitting, uh, when it might be hard to get to the cushion, and just be honest, describe your mind. If you've, avoiding, if you've avoided sitting practice on some days, uh, share that also with your partner. And pick one thing you can do through the day that you're going to treat as a formal meditation practice. So in addition to sitting still, pick one thing you do during the day that can become a formal mindfulness practice. Uh, in my house, it tends to be the dishes at dinner time, but maybe it's walking to the place where you work. Uh, maybe mindful eating at lunch can be a practice. Maybe it's uh, locking and unlocking your car or bicycle. Is there one thing you do uh, you know, several times in the day that you can turn into a formal practice? And when you treat that as a formal mindfulness practice, reflect on the inseparability of mindfulness and nonviolence. Observe the seamlessness of staying present in this moment, even when it's painful. Notice the activation of non-harming in your life and see how those things are all linked together. Practice is coming home to this moment in every daily action, trying, lifting, working, communicating.
maybe you might want to treat uh, going out for coffee with a friend as a formal practice. And so in the way that I teach, I like to take things that are sacred, like lighting incense, and make that a very mundane, and take mundane things like uh, taking out the garbage, doing dishes, uh, domestic chores, and make those things sacred. So this is how we embody the precepts. This is how we bring practice into daily life. And uh, with your partner, uh, explore this together. And uh, um, on the Thursday, we'll have a chance to talk about this. Our world needs more people seeing things as they happen, mindfully, critically, compassionately. The Dharma and social justice are one and the same practice. We take care of ourselves and we take care of each other. And this goes on and on like gears, working together in harmony. Ending poverty, revamping our prison system, ending racism, gender justice, ending our fascination with war, bringing social awareness into our communities so they're diverse and awake, running renewable energy through our power grids, building affordable housing where people can produce food and live in homes with big windows, taking care of the earth and taking care of the body. All of this is our practice that requires inner work and outer work. And each one of you has something real to offer. Choose battles that are big enough to matter, but small enough to win. It's not easy and it's not hard. This is a daily practice that you can take up to benefit all beings. You might think at the beginning that this is just for you and you'll see over time how calling mindfulness practice the heart of nonviolence is actually activating the practice in your own heart, in the body, and also in the body politic. Inner transformation and social change go hand in hand. It starts in your breath and it permeates through our whole society. All living systems on the earth are in trouble right now. And one of the things that biology and psychology and ethicists and religion all share is this belief that life wants life to generate and we are life. So our practice is creating the conditions for life. And that happens in our own hearts with the formal techniques of meditation I've been exploring in this video. But it also happens when we move out into the world through our actions of body, of speech, and attentiveness. 
Thank you very much.